Okay, everybody, welcome to our conversation today with Jennifer Harvey about raising white kids. I want to say the subtitle correctly. Bringing up children in a racially unjust America. Let me be clear, this is not a book or a conversation about white people just being in a room together talking about being white in case the title has turned you off. <laughs> Jennifer and I are going to talk a little bit about that. Um, but I invited, I'm so grateful that you said yes to talking with me and um, going through a little bit of how this how, what your work is like, how you came to this, how you came to write this book. Um, I have so many questions always about all of that. But I want to, before I, we jump into that, just say thank you, thank you for taking the time to write the book, to do the mm -hmm. work, to share, um, and to be a leader in this movement that is so desperately needed in our world right now. Um, and it is some challenging, interesting, complicated work. It is. Thank you so much for making time to talk with me. It, it means a lot. I appreciate it. I'm obsessed with this book <laughs> in all the ways. I'm learning so much. And um, I've been an educator and in social justice movements and um, interested in the sociology of race and gender, which was yeah. my major in college. Um, and so I'm obsessed with the topic and I'm still learning. Me too. <laughs> I'm still learning too and I'm obsessed. <laughs> so tell me a little about your background and then what led you to the book. Sure. Right. So my background kind of big picture is um, I, I come out of the church. Um, I went to seminary and sort of have deep commitments to social justice for a very long time in part because of my religious, um, not all my religious upbringing, but some of my, you know, my counter in responses to my religious upbringing, but I am still, I'm ordained in the American Baptist churches. Um, so in seminary, I was really pushed in um, some ways that, was, uh, that were amazing and sometimes really difficult, especially by African-American um, peers at my graduate school around what social justice and racial justice means for someone who's privileged by whiteness. And um, so in my early 20s, I started to really ask the question, what does it mean to be a racially just, committed to racial justice, but be a white American who's every day benefiting from the very injustices that I'm also proclaiming myself to be opposed to. And so I really started that journey in my early 20s and I'm almost 50 now. So I've been on that journey for a long time. Um, both intellectually and as an activist and an organizer and it's as a teacher. Mm -hmm. And so that's sort of the big picture of my background. Um, and I was, you know, sort of learning all of that in the context of New York city, which is of course a very, very diverse place and, and also a deeply racially unjust place. And um, so what happened was I found myself in the last 10 or 20 years, increasingly in spaces where I was, had the opportunity to really engage other white folks who were trying to understand how to be in good multiracial coalitions with black people and brown people and native people and be good allies, that word gets complicated mm -hmm. these days, but yeah. to do a good job showing up um, as a white person in support of people of color led movements. And um, so I've, I've been at that for a long time. Well, what happened was about, you know, I, I, you know later in life I became a mom mm -hmm. and I realized ironically enough, when my kid was, well, I mean, if, you know, before this, but in a really dramatic way, when, when my, one of them was about two or three, 
like, oh, I do all this. I talk to adults all the time about race. I, you know, I'm engaged in multiracial organizing. I don't know how to talk to my two or three year old about or what I'm supposed to be saying. And then I found myself in some of these spaces I was in, um, especially after um, Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson. I heard all these white adults who were in their own lives seeking to be, um, you know, increasingly committed to racial justice work and also saying, and what should we be telling our kids about police violence against black people, about immigration? And I realized when those questions would come to me that I didn't have a great answer. And so between that and becoming a mom myself, I just thought, okay, I want to see, like, look at what I'm doing. Look at the mistakes I'm making. Look at the insights I'm gaining and see what some of the, you know, the evidence-based theory is out there about how we could be doing this work in a different way and what we need to be doing developmentally with children. And so that's really where the, it's really kind of a, a, a vulnerable, um, ex, you know, expose on my very flawed, still in process parenting myself. My kids are now eight and 10 and I just, I've been trying to become more and more conscious about what I'm doing and convene with other parents who are also trying to figure out how do we raise a generation of white kids in a different way than any generation of white kids has been raised before? Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that question. Um, as a curiosity, as an exploration, yeah. as an ex- ex- experiment, almost like very yeah. intentional experiment. Uh, yes. But right? there's no template out there. I know, I know. No, we have never done this. White people have not done this. We have not raised generations of anti-racist youth. Yeah. But, and many of us want to. And so yes, got to figure out how we do it. And then that's the next question is, so what do we do? Right. Yeah. Is so that's our intention. What are a few things that you, I guess, to back up a little bit, what are the differences between parenting? Do boys or girls or one of each? Um, I, both of my kids identify as she. Um, okay, got and, it. And, you know, gender is complicated. <laughs> Always, but identify as she. Yeah. Because in our family, um, what I notice is my daughter, who's 11, um, is I have a much easier time talking, working, reading, writing, taking her in the community, um, being very intentional and mindful than I do my eight-year-old son. Oh, interesting. And so I'm working also with noticing and trying to learn and talk about specifically raising a white male in yeah. society yeah. that I'm often very triggered, activated by his, some of his behaviors and wow fearful of the future. If he taps yes. me on the butt, I turn around in not an appropriate rage and I'm working with that. Or when I see him playing with a Nerf gun with a neighborhood, I, I fast forward to white male shooters. Like there's so much. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so I'm just noticing that piece of, of yep. gender in our home and how that's playing out. And absolutely it's soft and fuzzy with my daughter. <laughs> and much more complicated with my son. Yes. Yes. That, that makes, that makes perfect sense to me. Right. So what is your journey with toddlers to middle, mid, like middle age children looked like in terms of the development? So if we have um, parents and community members and teachers listening to this to say, okay, so what does that look like through the different stages for just from your own experience? Yeah. So it's thing- like, you're the expert and this right. is how you do it, you know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> um, guinea pigs is right. What, what, but, <laughs> but we do, what we, we do have some data because of course we have, there's been a lot of study of developmentally what goes on with children around race and difference. Mm-hmm. And 
So, I mean, the biggest thing I would say is that um, white socialization, whether it's, uh, you know, it's, and it's on a continuum from like, okay, explicit racism to, I would say that the most sort of, um, the furthest we've gotten is like, oh, we're going to tell our kids to celebrate difference and diversity and we're going to embrace equality, um, which of course is uh, the, where we want to be relative to, you know, explicit racism. But what we know is developmentally that um, teaching our kids abstract things like, well, just value equality, we're all equal, mm. um, doesn't mm. developmentally mean that much to them. Yeah. Um, and um, so there's a, there's, a, there's a couple of practices that we need to just commit to. One is that, and this, we have to override what I call white silence, which is pervasive in white communities where, and, and by white silence, I'm including saying, oh, everybody's equal. That's not talking about race. That's a form of white silence because it's so abstract. It, kids don't know what it means. And our, all of our data shows it doesn't help them filter racist messaging. So um, we have to start talking about race all the time, early and often. And so what that means is like with really young children, we talk about, you know, we, we incorporate diverse, you know, language, the way we teach them language about all kinds of things. We talk about difference, you know, we point out different skin tones, both in media and in actual, when we're out in the world, just like we point out and talk about all kinds of things. Again, for white, many white people, that feels very, like we are having to counteract this generational thick white silence where we have been told it's not good to point mm. out difference. Yes. And part of the reason we think that is because we've in, in white communities, that's always, it's typically been, Oh, we're pointing out difference for the purpose of racism. Thus we shouldn't be pointing it out. Right. But the problem right. is um, first of all, people of color value have said my difference matters to me. I want it to be seen and acknowledged. This is, you know, race matters and our children notice difference and they notice people being treated differently much earlier than we think they do. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. early and often race talk, whether it's, you know, really young children, just talking, making that part of the chatter that we engage in with kids about everything else. And, and, as they get older, explicit race talk, talking about Africa, you know, this is what it means to be African-American. Here's a story about someone who's Latina. Um, you know, bringing that into the mix the way we often ask kids about what's the name of that person? What's, you know, what, are they a boy or a girl? Are they, yeah. How yeah. do they identify? Where are they from? You know? Mm -hmm. um, so that's one. And then of course, as kids get older, they are more and more able to do that with us. And if we've established that chatter early, they won't think, oh, I'm not supposed to talk about this. Because the right. other thing that happens, our, our white kids learn very early that they're not supposed to talk about difference. Mm -hmm. We have all kinds of studies that show that they think adult, they're not supposed to talk about this. So they talk about it with each other. Um, and just like lots of conversations we wouldn't want our children having without adult redirection, race is not one that I want my kids having without me, you know, being involved to help redirect and ask questions and journey with them. So early and often race talk, Early and often teaching about racism, um, you know, really young, our kids can understand what meanness is mm -hmm. and we need to actively teach them that meanness happens sometimes around race and it's called racism. And we have to do that if we want our kids to develop the capacity for anti-racism. If they can't, if they don't know what racism is, if they don't know it when they see it, if they don't have um, invitations to morally imagine how they can act against it, 
um, they can't possibly develop anti-racist skills, which most white adults don't yet have, because we have also had all this white silence. Okay, so that's also the piece that I feel like is coming up is this, my daughter, who I've been very intentional with, has is very um, just evolved in her language and communication, um, more so than many of her elders that she's yeah. around. Yes. Some of so, our kids are. <laughs> yeah. So how do we work with that? What do you have? You seen that? Have you? <laughs> um, I mean, this is in the yes. in, in gender identity as well. Yeah. There are yeah. some things in yeah. families that are right we're working with. So one of the things that I certainly see that in my own family, mm-hmm. um, one of the things that means we have to be prepared to do, and this again is breaking that white silence. One of the mm-hmm. places where racism tends to run rampant is in fa- white families where we go, Oh, just, you know, grandpa's going to say this thing and we're yeah. just going to breathe through it because yeah. we don't want to make a, a messy scene at the family dinner table. So our kids, oftentimes either learn that that's what you're supposed to do when racism happens or they end up kind of alienated from their own parents, right? One of the things that we can do, I think is appropriately model for our children. um, And sometimes they model it for us, but say, you know what? Yeah. When so-and-so in our family says that, what are some of the things we could say to make clear that that's actually incorrect and actually it's unkind and actually it's a form of racism. And we like ourselves as adults start practicing disrupting family cohesion for the sake of truth, whether or not we're going to change that white adult's mind, we are teaching our kids something important about our actual values. And so some kids do that early and they will, you know, they'll just take on the elder in the family or whoever it is. It's not always the elders, right? Um, Absolutely not. Um, But I think one of the things we parents or caretakers have to say is we're going to a give our kids permission by modeling it to interrupt racism when it's happening in a family conversation. We can do that without saying, oh, you know, I don't ever want to speak to you again, but we have to do it if we want our kids to be able to do it. And I deeply believe we should never stop our children, never from challenging sister, aunt, grandpa, never. And we need to have their backs when they do it. Um, I think that's one of the most damaging places where we model racism and complicity with racism for our young people. And then we expect them to somehow show up in the world differently. Um, And so that's something that's really hard for white folks in family structures where this is stuff is going on. Certainly has been hard since 2016. Yeah. Um, We we have, but we have to talk, you know, we have to talk about that with our kids. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, again, being able to, back up. I love that to back up our kids as they're expressing what they're seeing as they're evolving and opening and be doing more of the anti-racist work moving forward, sort of family by family, person yeah. by person. Yeah. Yeah. What was yeah. the, um, so how did you know when it was time to write the book and sort of get that in our hands so that we could have these conversations and bring some of this, like, tell me a little bit about that process of writing and thinking and gathering your research and evidence for the book in order to gift us this, this gem. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Um, so the process itself, I think in part, the timing was really just about, um, myself being realizing I was, you know, I think, I think I started writing, um, when my kids were like four ish, you know, and, 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 and in part, it was time to write it because I, a lot of, you know, I, I, one of the ways I think is by writing. Yeah. And so 
because I was experiencing parenting and because I was around other white adults who were, you know, themselves engaged in anti-racism, but were also now having kids in their lives. And so we're asking questions. Mm -hmm. Um, I knew it was time simply because I couldn't find resources really. I mean, appropriately, lots of our writing about racism, um, engages and talks about, and this is the most urgent reality, the impact of racism on kids of color and the various things that children of color experience and youth of color experience. Good, right? But the, the reality is those, you know, nothing about race if you're talking about an unjust system. It's not just that we're diverse and so we all have to work on diversity. It's that we have an injustice. And so if you're on the privileged side of that, the journey is different. And so I knew it was just time to write the book in part because I needed it in part because others needed it. And there was just nothing else. And then the other thing was, I think I was also ready to write it in part because the reality is that a book about parenting white children um, is as much about the adults as it is about the children. (laughs) You know, we can't, there's things we can and cannot say about racism and anti-racism that say a heck of a lot more about our own development as white adults than about our kids. And so I already knew and had engaged lots of that work because of my own activism and my own, you know, invitation and challenge people had given me to be involved as a white person in multiracial racial justice work. And so I already knew about, you know, white racial development theory, for example. And I knew as a teacher, I had used those theories to help better teach my students, all of my students, not just my white students. Um, and then it was like, oh, you know what? I know this stuff. Actually, what, what does this look like? I, I thought about this in the classroom around what's going on with 20 year olds when they're engaging about questions of race. What does it mean for a five-year-old or six-year-old? You know, so, so I already had that kind of, um, way of understanding aspects of white identity and just thought, okay, so what does it mean to now think about this more practically around children? And this was, I mean, the book was written before, pretty much before the, 2016 election. (laughs) Yeah. But then it was just only that much more evident or then like Charlottesville, like all those people were young people there. Yeah. You know, this myth we have that this is an older generation crisis. It's not true. Um, so yeah. Yeah. And we need more books. This is just like a drop in the bucket, you know, are you going to write you working on more in terms of this, in terms of like a trilogy or like <laughs> leading us through the whole can we do teens and young adults and university? maybe when I get to having teens you know I don't I I don't know I mean to write about parenting was very much outside my wheelhouse I mean that's not an area of expertise that's, I'm not a religious studies scholar you know so I am writing yeah. some working on some other projects right now um none of, none of them have to do explicitly with parenting but um but but maybe I mean I have a I have an almost eleven year old now and I know that and I do I'm aware that I sort of wrote up to the yeah. <laughs> right. so you left I'm us like, hanging <laughs> pretty much by the time my older one's a teenager I'll probably hear from her like oh no you messed this all up yeah. and there's a whole new template we need right because the youth will lead us too when we you know oh yeah well that so them. you're you what do you teach at Drake. I teach religion and Christian ethics and I do a lot on race and religion and religion and politics okay. and theology. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've always been engaging questions of social justice and especially yeah. racial justice as a scholar, but, um, you know, my, I'm, you know, I'm in the religion and philosophy department. 
What does the, what does, so you said you were in New York City before doing a long time, um, doing a lot of social and racial justice work. What is it like in Des Moines? What's the difference with Des Moines? Oh my gosh, it's so different. Yeah. Um, So how have you, how do you work with that? Well, the ways that they're different, um, I would say, is my dog making so much noise you can't? No, it's okay. I'm, okay. It's usually mine, so it's fine. Okay, because it I think someone's life. outside and <laughs> I might not stop. Um, <laughs> one of the ways it's different is that um, in New York, in, I feel like the analysis around what it means to be an ally as a white person, what it means to do intersectional justice work, um, is in some ways, I don't, I don't say this pejoratively, but it's just, it's further along. I, I think there's more people of color there. Yeah. And so the collective organizing is, um, in some ways more emboldened. And, and so in some ways I learned to be really, have to really, you know, I, I, I now, we now have the language of white fragility, but as soon as I, the first time I heard that term, I was term, I was like, oh yeah, that's what I learned through, learned to move through in the nineties by being a white person doing multiracial justice organizing. Like I developed the capacity to handle white fragility and move through it. Mm-hmm. Um, Des Moines is much more segregated. Um, I would say there's, that's both makes multiracial organizing in some ways more difficult because the communities are more separated. In some ways, it also makes it easier because there's a little bit more willingness to sort of trust and build alliances across racial lines because demographically, communities of color are so underrepresented in, in the Iowa context relative to, say, New York City, that they, like it's really clear to all of us doing justice work, we cannot win if we don't build coalitions. And so there's a little bit more willingness to like be with people on a growing curve, I think, here. Um, and also the other difference is that Iowa is so small and Des Moines is so small that I feel like we are having, we can have real impact, like yeah. visible outcomes that change. Things can change much. The levers that you push on, you can see what happens when you do much more immediately than a place like New York city where, you know, horrific violence against black and brown people by police departments in New York and huge numbers when we would, you know, when we were people, you know, huge numbers of organizers working on that for so long. And there were times where it felt like, okay, this is not making it, you know, here that like you can call up this, your state rep will call you back, you know? Right. Right. More person. It's It's just a smaller pond. Right. Relationship sort of old school, like one-to-one and picking up the phone rather than the large movements, which there's benefit and value to both, obviously. Yeah, yeah, sure. It's different, right, than scaling it, right, which is what everybody talks about. Yes. Um, So you wrote the book before 2016. Is there anything you would add or change now since the climate has changed so much? Um... I did. Okay. I do want to say, I did finish it up there. I do think in the last chapter, I talk about the election. Cause I, cause I did, it was almost done, but then it, yeah. yeah. But anyway, um, so I just want to be accurate about that, but I, so I don't know that there's anything I would add other than to perhaps, um, you know, maybe more explicitly talk about how do we then also, you know, the racial justice and race conscious parenting that I argue for in there, I would probably draw in a lot more examples about, for example, 
how have we talked about immigration in our household? Right. You know, like when right. we, I would probably talk a lot more about um, things like, mm-hmm. you know, so in lots of our parenting, we emphasize like following the rules and listening to what your teacher says. And, and now all of a sudden my kids are like, what do you mean? The law says people can't cross the border. And so now we're having to have much more, I'm like, oh yeah, much more nuanced conversations about mm-hmm. how there are laws that need to be broken and violated. And, that there's a morality that's deeper than the law, probably more language around those kinds of things would, would be in the book if I were writing it now. Yeah. Because our kids were like, oh yeah, you should do what authorities say. And well, that's the discourse that's being used to, um, you know, violate people's human rights at the border. So um, I would probably be more intentional about that, I think. Is there anything that you learned, anything that, maybe you learned like what was like the biggest thing that you learned or that shocked you when writing or practicing at home was there you have such a thorough background so you maybe there wasn't anything but was there anything during the process that really surprised you during the writing process yeah or just researching or evidence or putting it down you know and thinking through and these the questions at the end of the chapter are so guiding and wonderful and great to wrap it up. So just wasn't sure if there was anything you kind of learned along the way or changed in your own life, you know, changed in your own practice that started to make a little bit more sense. Yeah. I think the thing that I most learned um, in the course of getting explicit about the kinds of courage that I'm trying to continue to, that I'm trying to practice in my parenting Mm -hmm. is, I mean, if there's anything that I, really believe is true that I want other white parents to know is that our kids are so much more ready and able to have these conversations than we yes. do. My kids have blown that some of the moments I most loved writing about in the book were when my kids would just shock the heck out of me. Mm-hmm. You know, when I would ask, when I ask a question about how would you handle something and my four-year-old starts saying, you know, talking about, well, a white kid needs to step up because it's a white kid who did it. And I didn't even say that, you know, it was just, so I think that's the thing that has most surprised me about being focusing on the question of parenting is just like our kids are so ready, much more ready and able for justice frameworks through, to live into. Yeah. And we sometimes give them credit for. Um, and then the other thing that's been a really wonderful surprise is how many people have found what I have experienced to be a pretty vulnerable project. I mean, it's really, to me, very vulnerable to write about my own it's one thing to talk about reparations. It's a whole other thing to write about my parenting and all, you know, all the mistakes I'm making and the, the number, the, 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 the ways in which I've heard back, not just from white parents, but in the multiracial spaces, I've been invited to talk about my, my learnings in the book, how that it's been helpful and empower, empowering in some ways and helped folks find language for things we're all experiencing, but we haven't really, found words for, I think, in many ways. So that's been a surprise that it has been a very welcome one. Yeah. I can imagine, especially because there's um, been so much silence in, especially yeah. in parenting, that you're just really charting a new course of questions. And did you get any, what kind of um, any pushback or criticism that either made you think or, or be able to articulate um, a belief that you had in a stronger way? Because sometimes that's what criticism does, yeah, right? Or yeah. or pushback, and and it's like, oh, actually, I meant yeah. it this way, or this is really how I believe, and and yeah. it's not landing with you. Yeah, I think a couple things. One is that, and I think this is probably true, 
Um, I would say one of the suspicions of the book and a suspicion that I have of it even is that it's also um, a pretty inviting, gentle, loving book. I feel like there's a lot of love in this book. <laughs> oh, yes. And, and I know that especially given all that this that we've been through as a nation in the last two or three years, and, it, I mean, and this was true before, but I think the last two or three years has been kind of a tipping point. There's a real suspicion that um, words that are sort of a kind, a kind, gentle approach to in, alluring people into the work of courage of, of, of becoming really proactive about anti-racism, you know, white folks, uh, to be frank, white folks don't have a lot of credibility right now for very good reason. And so I think there's kind of, there's sometimes a suspicion that that, that way I, I really tried intentionally write with a lot of compassion because in some ways I was writing to myself and I think appropriately there's some suspicions yeah. about that approach to talking about any of these issues right now. And I, I, I absolutely get that. And I also know that I don't know how else to, to like lean into it in that way. And then I think the other thing that has been a learning for me is, um, I mean, the title often provokes people yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah. I have learned again that <laughs> there is so much fear mm -hmm. that, um, I've learned, for example, to never do marketing that I don't say upfront, this is an anti-racism conversation. Yes, yes, yes. Because what people see when they yeah. see the word white, yeah. basically is, unless it's really clearly a justice anti-racism conversation, what they see is racist. And so literally, yes. I, it's been everything from people thinking I was yeah. part of the alt-right, yeah. <laughs> you know, an identity, you yeah. know, advocating white identity movement. Um, or thinking it's a whites only conversation, which it's not because the thing right. is people of color deal with whatever we white parents are doing. People of color are then dealing with that. Kids of color are dealing yeah. with it. College students of color are dealing with it. Colleagues of color deal with it. And so having to really learn again, like to be so careful about, about being yeah. clear about what, what the conversation is. It's a conversation for all of us because yeah. we are all impacted by what white parents are doing with our children. So. And that was interesting. So, I, so our community knows that I've put out that we're having this live conversation this weekend at my home. Um, but one of the things that came up was behind the scenes messages from parents of color saying, I'm obsessed with what you're doing. I don't want to come. I don't feel mm -hmm. right about coming, but I'm so glad you're doing this. Oh. And I'm like, anyone is welcome. Like you're yeah. welcome. Yeah. All, all of our community is welcome to come, but specifically people saying, thank you for doing this. I don't want to come. Like, this is not my conversation. And again, like not asking anyone to come and heavy lift or teach us or be part of that whole education process. This is, you know, again, really complicated layered work, but that was a really interesting take. And yeah. then of course there was some discussion and asking and, activation on another listserv that posted that we were having this around um you know not wanting to be in groups with just white parents and again sort yeah. of the misunderstanding without yeah. having more of the context so um what was just so interesting to me about all of it is that it sort of also um was mirroring some of the things that happens with social media or with online is when there's like a reaction without a deeper a question yeah. Hey, you know, I'm curious about 
pleasant, like, especially if you know anything about like the leader's background or facilitation or what their career has been, again, just kind of giving context is so important and social has just taken away so much of it. So um, I can imagine that it is a very, Um, I I don't know even what the word would be to put something like this out there where people are just going to not read it and see the title and go on a field day. Um, What's your call to action for people? What do you want them to, first of all, I want them, I I will say everybody needs to buy the book. Thank you very much. And buy it for your teachers. I think teachers, I mean, I've invited a lot of our teachers in our community school to come um, be part of these conversations as much as as they're interested and have time for. I don't want to put anything else on teachers plates either right now, because it's a lot for them in terms of what they're asked to do outside of work. Yes. um, (laughs) With no pay. Yes. Um, And I'm not okay with that. But um, teachers and classrooms. So if you have, if you're listening to this and you have classroom teachers and you want to grab them a copy or your administrator at your school, your PTA, your PTO, you know, I really want to get the book in as many community leaders hands as possible. So that's my personal call to action. Um, do you have one for people that you'd love for them to know or do? So I would say sort of the, the abstract call to action is that we need to show, we need to just decide we're going to be brave. And so I talk in the book about like, you know, one of the places we get stuck oftentimes as white people, not just white parents, white people in general, but certainly when parenting is like thinking I've got to have the perfect action, the perfect words, the perfect, you know, fail proof strategy. And you know what? We don't have them. And we need to speak anyway. We need to act anyway. That doesn't mean not being reflective or responsible, but we need to, it's more important that we realize that um, we've got to just show courage and be brave. And so that's like my sort of undercurrent call to action is decide to be brave. Like people are dying and our, our collective lives can't wait for us to get it all perfect. We need to show courage and tenacity and bravery. But then the concrete, one of the concrete ways we do that, I just love to encourage people to connect with other folks who are wrestling with this. I mean, one of the things that became so clear to me before I wrote the book, and one of the things that I think is still the case, is that so many of us are clear that there's a crisis and that we are wanting to do something with our kids that is different, that equips them in a different way than most of us were equipped um, by our parents and caretakers. And it's really hard to do by ourselves. And so if we can connect with each other and realize we, we are the ones we've been waiting for, we're the ones that need to build these strategies. And I'm like, I talk about it like it's like my bat phone. I have the 10 or 12 people on my list. I could tell you who they are. They're on my speed dial that, you know, help me problem solve, hold me accountable, encourage me when I'm discouraged, um, you know, all the things. And so I just really think we need each other and we need to be really granular about it. It's not just like, oh, I'm in a larger, you know, attempt to get yeah. with others. We want a better future. No, who are the people on my bat phone that, you know, yeah. who are supporting me in doing this work? And so um, that's one of the ways I think we help ourselves develop and, and stay in the work of courage and bravery is by having other folks who are doing it with us too and who are willing to tell us the truth, but also love us up while we do this hard thing of creating a different future than this present that so many people are suffering in. Yeah. It's so, it's so interesting that you say that because I have a dear, dear sister friend, sister wife friend. (laughs) And, um, 
I'll listen to something and I'll uh, podcast and I'll text her the link of it and say, I'm feeling really angry after I listened to this or I heard this Ah. and she'll say, okay, let me listen. And then she'll call me and she'll say, okay, here's what I'm feeling mad about. And I'll say, here's what I'm experiencing. And we kind of pull it apart because I'm embarrassed. There'll be, this, this was especially happening last year and the year before where some of the identifying as, uh, you know, how privilege has been in my life and, and, identifying with the racist aspects of my privilege. Um, and I get very confused and start to center because of my Judaism, mm. because I'm still reconciling and questioning how to externally be considered white and, uh, and then internally have all this ancestral weight of heaviness and darkness yeah. and not be considered white. And I'm very confused about this right now. I, okay. I, Think about it and I question all the time. Ashkenazi just came up in 23andMe as um, part as as part of your, you know, it'll tell you obviously where you're from. And now it's saying Ashkenazi, and that's very confusing to me. Oh, okay. Okay. Because I'm like, well, wait, it's a, it'll say Ireland and it'll say England. <sighs> Ashkenazi. Is that a person of color? Right. <laughs> what is and so I just have all these questions and this this sister friend and I, we just go back and forth with these. She feels safe with me. I feel safe with her. She's not educating me, but I feel I can go with these big questions and say, I don't know. And then she'll come back and say, you know, ask me stuff about Judaism and ask me stuff about males and shootings because of my son. So we can have that. And that, uh, that's such a good thing to remember as part of the work is being able to dig in with someone that you trust yes. to be fully honest with when there's no answer that's apparent. Yes. Yes, yeah. absolutely. No, that's the, that is, I mean, we, we need that. We yeah. need it like, yeah. like we need water and air. And it takes time because I mean, it, and that's the commitment and prioritizing is to listen to something, to download it, to journal, to reflect, to reach out to someone to say, you know, and it, that wasn't a, a two hour process. It was probably over 10 days yeah. where we went yeah. back and forth, but again, um, investigating. Do you have your book by you? You have your copy? Uh... No, <laughs> I didn't ask you to, so I put you in the spot because I was going to ask you to read something that I love without. Oh, I wish you had it by me because that would have been wonderful to do. But I don't even, I don't even think I have a copy in the house right oh, now. Okay, great. Well then, do you know page two ninety by heart? <laughs> okay, so here is what I want to leave everybody with. Unless there's anything else you want to say to everybody, I'll open up for your free space. No, I just, actually I do the, 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 something about what you just said about your, um, sister friend, Mm -hmm. um, is also one more thing I want to say to folks that is that you named about that is how much time it takes is that we also just sort of need to know that like, we are, especially parents who are just like love up our children. Like we have learned to do so many hard things and I didn't wake up thinking, Oh, you know, like I know about nutrition. I'm just going to like, it's, you know, like I had to go, Oh, I need to learn what a kid needs to eat. And I decided, and that was a priority to me. And we should not expect ourselves to just know how to do this. We also also cannot expect that it's something with that we will figure out how to do well. If it's like, Oh, it's not a to-do list. It's, this is like a learning curve that takes time and it takes prioritizing this um, capacity building that we have to do if we want to, really show up for our kids and for everybody's kids. 
in the way that we show up for our kids. And so I just would sort of encourage folks in that way to like, it's a priority that's a life affirming priority to make, but it's one that does take a commitment. It's not a, you know, it's not a one shop, you know, one off workshop. You know, we've, I'm 48. I've been, I've been breathing in white supremacy for 48 years on this land base, you know? Yes. So um, how I raise my kids differently is, is a daily work. Mm -hmm. You can't get the top three, like those, what is it? Clickbait, they call it, where it's like top three ways to not not be racist. Like, (laughs) that's what I'm saying. It's, it's much more of that feminine energy where it's unknown and it's wavering and it's fearful and it's expansive and you can't just check it off that to-do list. And that is how many parents, I'll just speak for Washington, D.C., are operating in terms of scheduling soccer, not being racist, making lunches, <laughs> right? Like these things, and, right. and so yes, there. It's deeper, it's wider, it's expansive, it's changing, mm-hmm. and it's important, and it's liberating when we do it. Yes. What do you? Okay. One last question. What do you do for your own self and community care because of the work you do? Is there anything? How do you process and digest the work that you do? How do you take mm. care of yourself through this? And this is part of that pleasure yeah. activism, the Adrian yes, Brown. Yeah. Yes. Oh gosh. Woo, yeah. I love her. Love I it. do too. <laughs> you know, I think one of the ways is through that same bat phone, like those people that also like are also like my people, you know, they just, and so we also have community together and in, you know, in locally in Des Moines, I'm just part of amazing networks of people who, you know, sometimes it is because we're gathering to do activism together, but I end up, and I've noticed this again so much in the last two and a half years, that every time I gather with other folks in physical shared space, I come home feeling less despair, rejuvenated, connected. Um, And I also, the other thing I would say is I'm really pretty practiced and committed around, um, you know, uh, I have two wonderful dogs. You heard one of them barking obnoxiously, for, you know, t- t- playing with them really, really boundaried commitments around here's the months of the year. I don't do X, Y, or Z. Um, I do a lot of running and yoga and I love really good coffee. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I try really hard to just to recognize that this work is limitless and thus me setting limits so that I can be sustained in it is not a negotiable it's that's not negotiable i i have to set limits or else i can't be sustained so i'm i'm pretty good at doing that and i have amazing people in my life um some physically here and others very close in heart even if they don't live in des moines who make it easy to do that because they i want to spend time with them so so that's a piece of it and those folks rejuvenate me so I think it's an important part that I always try to bring up with other heartful practitioners because again, the old conversation was, you know, fast track to burnout. We we didn't talk about this. We just kept saying, how much are you doing? How much are you doing? How much are you getting done? What have you done? And so now, and um, I've been that person. I mean, I know what that in my (laughs) phones in New York when I was doing, I was like, okay, sure. I can stay up till 2am for another meeting where we're just fighting, you know, like, yeah, no, I cannot. Yeah. And I think it also, that is like my twenties in a nutshell, like, you know, and I also think that that's, I study and teach a lot of Ayurveda. And so from an Ayurvedic perspective, that's very normal. That's like exactly Uh, what you should be doing until you sort of build the wisdom. But I love that the wisdom now has compassion fatigue that we can talk about, that we've got research on, that we can talk about self-care and community care 
at a very holistic, deep level in honor of the work. Yes. And right. That's such a shape. Yes. Changer. Totally. It you absolutely know? is. And this is a generational, 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 generational yeah. work. I mean, that's what, yeah. you know, uh, you know, black communities know this yeah. native communities know this diverse Latino peoples know this, this is, this is not getting fixed tomorrow. Right. You know, this is, we have to be in this for the long haul. And so, um, that's, you know, so. Are there any, um, people, uh, people of color organizations that are allies, anyone that you want to promote or make sure that our listeners know about, um, in terms of reading, writing, doing the work for themselves? Um, you know, I mostly am plugged in, in terms of, in that way it, with, with communities here in Des Moines. Yeah. Uh, so that wouldn't, those, those names wouldn't yeah. make as much sense, but I do, I do sort of pay attention to like, I mean, I think that like, especially for white activists, my on road through supporting and engaging what leaders of color across the country are saying and doing has come through surge, which is sort of trying to galvanize white folks, but there's commitment to accountable relationships with people of color led organizing. So of course the movement for black lives um, has been a significant um, body in that regard. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm trying to think of what the there's, I mean, there's also a national immigrant justice um, Mm -hmm. group that surge is often connected with. So that's sort of the, that's sort of where I tend to sort of look if I'm Mm -hmm. not, if I'm looking beyond the local context. Mm -hmm. And I also recently sort of unsubscribed, uh, tried to be relevant and connect from more focus, like sort of what we're talking about with that intimacy in the relationship, rather than I think a few years ago, I started subscribing and paying attention to all the voices Mm. because I was in tune that I wanted to have a more diverse um, perspective on life. And so my social channels and newsletters, I would subscribe to everybody. And now a few years later, I'm like, okay, I really relate. I can, I'm learning a lot. I'm taking notes on this podcast or this newsletter so I can sort of hone a little bit energetically again because of sustainability because I was just getting overwhelmed with, I'm not doing enough here and I'm not doing enough here. Right. Right. (laughs) Yeah. That's for me too. I mean, it's, I've, I've really thought like it, for me, there's something significant about like, if you go to my Twitter feed, I'm like reading all the, you know, people all over the place doing all kinds of levels of work, but I want to be really deep dive yeah. on the work that I'm doing for yeah. me in this moment in my life yeah. um, in terms of a, being a citizen as opposed to like out teaching on the book or something, which I also yes. do. But in terms of activism, it's yeah. really local. I want to impact change where I live with black communities in the, in the city I live in, with Latino communities in the city that I live in. Yeah. Um, and so it's, and so that's, where I'm really present and, and focused and where when I'm, you know, time, energy, and resources, that's the yep. three things that I'm trying to always be channeling out. And it's very much at a local tent, at a local level that I'm doing those things. Do people have to be experts in this work to lead a conversation group? <laughs> they do not. Guided <laughs> question. Um, to be experts. Um, <laughs> although it's nice. There is a, a free, um, discussion group guide that comes with a book. I'll put the link in the show. I, yep. I definitely highly recommend using that because, yeah. um, it's really well done. The publisher, Cindy, um, uh, Oh, the name of the person who did it is the last name of the person who did it is escaping me. Do you have it? I have it right here, but um, for some reason she's, she's, not author, on. She's, she's the author of parenting forward, which is also an incredible <laughs> book. But it's funny, um, it's just your name all over the front of it. <laughs> but uh, Cindy Wong Brandt. 
Yes. Cindy Juan yep. Brent. Yeah. Um, and she did a fantastic job and I do yeah. encourage folks to use it because, you know, especially if you get yeah. a bunch, a lot of white folks in the room who haven't been practicing this things we do, we do yeah. get wily. I mean, our socialization shows up. Yeah. So having some guidance is never a bad idea. Yeah. Um, and it also might help folks feel like, Hey, yeah, I can do this because there's some great questions that help us, you know, and help a group just sort of, so, you know, dive in together. You do not have to yeah. be an expert. Um, we all just need to start where we are at. So I just want to make sure that people understand. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> all right. So now here comes the, one of my favorite quotes from the book. We're a nation in crisis. Creating a different future requires that we tell the truth about that. Whole communities of children, teenagers, 20-somethings and beyond are caught in the neighborhoods and systems that are heavily patrolled by police in which there exist school-to-prison pipelines who are boxed out from high-quality education. Larger scale social activism must be part of the mix for all white people. However, the various struggles we engage in and commitments we may look, we can and we must push back against the silence that pressures us to raise our white children to be good people and just hope for the best. Going in, challenging ta taboos, speaking against racial dynamics, being brave, not only impacts the world we live in, it teaches and equips our children to do the same. Our children can grow into citizens, neighbors, friends, and family members able to resist, dissent, create, and construct as we equip them race-conscious nurture towards healthy white identity today, tomorrow, and throughout their lives. Another world is possible. May it be so. Mm, thank you. Amen, <laughs> Jennifer Harvey. You the bomb. <laughs> thank, thank you so, so much. much. And we'll pleasure. keep in touch. We'll let you know how it goes. And... I just really honor the work that you do, even if you don't do a trilogy and you don't keep us <laughs> going. Well, I might, or maybe that's you'll okay. write the next part. <laughs> oh, that's okay. <laughs> no, just kidding. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much. Be well.